The IBM Selectric was an immensely popular typewriter that was initially released in 1961, and it's thought to have been such a success, in part because of its design, it looks quite beautiful, to my eye at least, and in part because it did away with the traditional basket of type bars that would swing up when you pressed a key, each type bar with a letter or other character at the end, applying ink to paper, and this typewriter replaced that setup with what's called a typing element, sometimes called a type ball or a golf ball, because it looks like a little golf ball-sized object, covered in convex letters, numbers, and other common symbols. This change in how the letters were applied to the page made the typewriter overall less prone to mechanical issues, and it also allowed for the relatively simple changing of fonts. You could pull the little ball out of the typewriter, swap in a new one covered in bold type or italics or Hebrew characters or whatever else, and then go about typing as you were before, different lettering made available without requiring an entirely new device. Upgrades were made to this basic model over the course of the next few decades with the Selectric 2, introducing new spacing and layout options and the correcting Selectric 2, containing two types of what was called correcting tape. One that was close to what we today might call whiteout, so you could type, make a mistake, and then type over that mistake with correction fluid covering it up, and another that was called lift tape, which would be applied over letters that you just typed and then pulled off, lifting most of the ink off with it. Throughout the 60s, magnetic tape versions of the Selectric were released alongside their completely analog kin, which allowed users to interface their typewriters with early computers and other magnetic storage devices. In essence, this made these typewriters into a kind of proto-word processor, as the magnetic tape worked like a hard drive, remembering the characters typed and saving that information to non-physical storage. In some cases, this also allowed the typewriter to interface with other devices, like punch card printers and tape readers, which would expand the typewriter's storage beyond its built-in 8,000 characters. An offshoot of this version of the Selectric, called the Selectric Composer, became the hot new thing among publishers, allowing them to quickly and accurately produce photo-ready page layouts meaning completely designed pages ready to print on paper for magazines and newspapers using all kinds of font families and sizes. By the time the Selectric 3 arrived, in the early 1980s though, other competitors had caught up in both the professional space and on the consumer front, and the Selectric was not the dominant typewriter anymore, the way that it had been since 1961. That said, it was still the dominant device used by government agencies, such agencies being generally more resistant to change than their enterprise and consumer-grade counterparts, and slower to upgrade because of the way that they're funded, often buying into a platform and sticking with it longer than just about anyone else, out of necessity. This dependency led to the Selectric being more or less ubiquitous throughout United States government buildings, including U.S. embassies around the world, a long while after they disappeared elsewhere. And that ubiquity catalyzed the development of what became known as the Selectric Bug.
The Selectric Bug was an eavesdropping device developed by the Soviet Union, beginning sometime in the mid-1970s, but continuing to be iterated and utilized well into the 1980s. Sixteen such devices of five different makes or generations were discovered over the course of eight years, all of them planted in Selectric typewriters in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow and the U.S. Consulate in Leningrad. That these devices were discovered at all is actually almost as impressive as their development, as they were hidden within a metal support bar that ran horizontally along the inside of the typewriters. A replacement bar, hollowed out to make room for the device, was surreptitiously inserted into these government-owned machines, probably while the devices were en route, being delivered to the offices and passing through customs. From that location inside the device, they were able to measure small magnetic disturbances generated by the arms that controlled the movement of the golf ball mechanism that was utilized to apply the letters to the paper. The bug would then be periodically remotely activated, so no one had to fetch the device to use the data that it gathered. They could just turn it on from elsewhere in the building, and once activated, it would send its data via radio signal to a listening post set up somewhere nearby. The device would then be turned back off, saving on energy usage, but also making it difficult to detect with typical bug-sweeping methods. It's fairly likely the United States would not have caught these bugs at all, but bare minimum not as quickly as they did, had they not been tipped off by the French intelligence service, which had discovered a similar bug inside one of their teleprinters at their own Moscow embassy a teleprinter being kind of like a computer printer attached to a telegraph machine. After this warning from the French, the United States undertook a clandestine operation called the Gunman Project, which involved, without tipping off the Soviets, in whose country they were operating, checking over all of their equipment and bringing in replacements while the existing equipment was being checked over. It was during this process that the first bug was discovered, and after that, once the United States was able to rebuild the device, figure out how it worked, and find the others, they implemented new systems of checks and other defensive measures to keep the same from happening again on other sensitive communication devices. The Selectric Bug was a very clever innovation, and it's considered to be the first ever example of a plain language keystroke logger a device that records the entries made into a communication device before sending or saving that data so it can be utilized by someone else. What I'd like to discuss today are some modern iterations of the key logger and how they're being used at times for very abusive purposes. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Despite its many benefits and potential future benefits, surveillance has also been shown by many types of experimentation and research to have a chilling effect on public discourse. In practice, that means people are less likely to deviate from the status quo in their behavior and in their discussion when they know that they are or may be under surveillance by some type of authority. That authority could be a bureaucrat ready to hand them a ticket for stepping out of line, or it could be a gun-toting policeman or other militarized executor of the law, someone who has the government-given right to commit violence in order to maintain the status quo. It makes sense in either case 
that we might be wary of doing anything wrong, which is something you could see as a negative or a positive, depending on how lawful you consider your own actions to be. But the longer-term issues in this space are more broadly related to freedom of expression and the ability for a society to change and evolve over time. If you maintain the status quo too capably, you may also stifle the next great idea, the next social movement that one day will seem obviously good and right to most people, like the series of civil rights movements that took place in the United States over the course of the 20th century, but which at the time seemed like criminality or immorality or both. Through the lens of history, we see things differently than we see them in the moment quite often, and too effective surveillance could keep us from ever reaching that new, different point of view. If we're too good at keeping an eye on everyone, in other words, it could mean that the next civil rights movement never happens, because we put the next Victoria Woodhull, or Martin Luther King Jr., or Nelson Mandela, or Malala Yousafzai in jail, or debtor's prison, from all the tickets that they're given for causing trouble, for rabble-rousing. In some ways, though, despite the many concerns that we might justifiably have about even the provably beneficial types of surveillance, and there are forms of surveillance that have been shown in some places, deployed in some ways, to have very beneficial impacts, surveillance that we don't know about, that takes place without us even being aware it's a possibility, can be even worse in some cases can be immensely harmful to those who are being surveilled and can dramatically shift the balance of power toward the person doing the surveilling. But before I go any further, a quick disclaimer. I'll be talking a bit about abuse and stalking and other things of that nature throughout this episode. Nothing at all graphic, but I know that these topics can be very sensitive for some people, especially those who have been on the receiving end of violence or abuse at some point in their lives. So act accordingly with that. And if you are, for whatever reason, looking for resources related to these topics, you can find a list of them in the show notes for this episode at letsknowthings.com. That said, the article that I'd like to unspool today comes from the BBC, and it's entitled Stalkerware, the software that spies on your partner. Stalkerware is the less marketable moniker for a class of software that allows one person to spy on another person or a group of people without that latter person or group of people knowing, or in some cases, with them knowing, but not being made consciously aware of it at all times. One relatively tame form this software often takes is that of corporate keylogger applications, which businesses will put on office computers so they can, if they so choose, see everything that their employees type, and quite often everything that they click, upload, download, and so on on those computers. Sometimes employees are made formally aware of this, sometimes it's in their contracts, but intentionally never made more overt than that. And sometimes these businesses justify installing this software because they bought the computers so they can do what they want with them. An argument that often holds up in court, though when it doesn't, it's generally because someone who controls that software has abused it in some way. Now, I'll talk more about those potential abuse cases in a bit, but the regular, fully legal utility of this software is unto itself potentially quite worrying if the surveilled person is not aware of what's going on. Finding out that someone has been listening in on what you thought were private emails, for instance, or checking out what you've been Googling on your lunch break, it can feel very invasive. And even if it's often not illegal, 
It's generally not well received by the person who is told or who finds out via some other means that they have been keylogged and they privately said something that the higher-ups didn't like, so they will now be disciplined or fired or whatever. Maybe nothing actually happens, they just know that those other people know what they've been saying in private. This often feels like an invasion of portions of the unspoken social contract that people will at times, and quite legitimately, say angry, frustrated things behind their boss's back, for instance, while also recognizing that it would be mean-spirited or wrong or otherwise not beneficial for the good of the individual and the group to say it to their face for a variety of reasons. It could certainly be argued that most people are better off most of the time avoiding mistruths and lies and gossiping and saying mean things about other people behind their back. But there are good arguments to be made, too, that taking such logic to an extreme will result in truly negative consequences, and surveillance of this kind arguably pursues that extreme in a very one-sided manner. Now that said, I can absolutely understand the logic of using this kind of software in certain specific circumstances, especially in industries and organizations, be they private or governmental, where espionage is a real concern. It probably makes sense to accept the trade-off in those cases of a little invasiveness in favor of hopefully catching someone who is trying to steal your intellectual property, your military schematics, some critical secret formula from you and your company before they're able to do serious damage with it. And there have been attempts to make this process a little less rife with abuse and a little more cold and calculating by utilizing what you might call artificial intelligence. Utilizing this type of technology can allow software to look for keywords and strange behavior on the part of employees, only flagging for review the weird stuff, the stuff that seems like it might be damaging in some way, so that the folks behind the scenes operating the software are not sitting around all day and spying on somebody's search results and watching what they do on their screen, and instead only see the bits that might be disconcerting. This can be particularly useful in helping to stymie the efforts of voyeurs who come to enjoy spying on their co-workers, and can potentially flag situations in which a particularly nosy IT or security department employee starts to stalk someone that they're meant to be passively surveilling for intellectual property theft and things like that. Like anything predicated on algorithms, though, these filters are only as good as the logic used to make them. And a lot of the tech industry conceptions about what is weird and what is normal is way off-center, not anywhere near average in baseline. And most of these types of systems reportedly throw up tons of false positives, missing the really worrisome stuff because the software doesn't know what to actually look for to prevent relevant crimes, despite being really good at looking for whatever you tell it to look for. But this is a technology or a family of technologies that could someday make this and other types of surveillance a little less intrusive, maybe alleviating some of the trade-offs inherent in this type of thing, nudging the entire industry toward being a bit more beneficent and useful with less opportunity for abuse. Another common use case for this type of product is as child monitoring software. And these days, the most common shape these programs take is apps for smartphones. There are a great many apps out there for all platforms that allow worried parents to keep tabs on their kids, each offering a different collection of capabilities ranging from tracking them 
via GPS, monitoring which apps they download and websites they visit, listening to them via their smartphone's microphone, or checking in on them via their smartphone's camera. With the right software on the right phone, you can essentially take complete control of that phone. As long as you're able to get that app installed, and you're able to then log in and connect the data coming from that phone to an app on your own phone, kind of like a control panel that allows you to keep tabs on all of the activity on your child's device. Like with the corporate surveillance kit, I can see why this would be appealing to some people in some circumstances. And I can imagine instances in which it would make sense, where it would be a desirable thing to have on the market, and absolutely perfect for some people's use cases, despite the massive potential for abuse that it offers up in a friendly, easy-to-sell package. Unfortunately, in many cases, both types of readily available surveillance wear are also being used for other, less legitimate purposes. And although some companies insist that their apps are very specific in their marketing and branding, and in the limitations placed on how they're used, a great deal of abuse is perpetrated using these types of apps, most frequently committed by suspicious, controlling, and or unscrupulous people against their partners or spouses, or ex-partners or ex-spouses. The trouble is, the very features that make these apps useful for those wanting to suss out moles within their company, or wanting to check to make sure their kids made it to school safely, also allow violent exes to track and potentially harm the person who divorced them. It can allow stalkers to digitally keep tabs on their targets, and can give a jealous, suspicious person the ability to watch the focus of their jealousy and suspicion, their partner, all day, every day in great detail, no secrets left. It can allow them to see what their target's smartphone's camera sees, listen to the conversations that they have, read their texts and emails, get regular reports about their computer activities, including Google searches and websites visited, images downloaded and sent, everything. Whether we're talking about a traditional keylogger that keeps tabs on what is typed or clicked, or a more thorough piece of kit that allows a smartphone to be taken over at the root level, giving full control of that device to the stalker or would-be assaulter, or suspicious partner, or in many cases both. In either case, this is an intrusion that is bare minimum a violation of privacy, but also potentially an amplifier for simmering anger or violence. It's like strapping a tracking collar on a person without their knowledge. And that tracking caller may be able to see what they see, hear what they hear, and track their engagement with other people, track what they buy, how they entertain themselves, share their bank information and credit card numbers, their journal entries, what they're reading, everything. Even back in 2000, before there were smartphones, there were police reports of jealous people using this type of software to spy on their exes. In one such case, which I will link to in the show notes, a man bought keylogger software meant to allow employers to spy on their employees to spy on his ex-wife. A program that gathered up all of her computer activity from web surfing to word processing to email and then sent notifications about that activity to him via email every 30 minutes. It did this without her knowing about it. And the only reason she found out was that her ex-husband told a shared friend and that friend went to the police, who then seized his computer and charged him with installing an eavesdropping device, eavesdropping, using a computer to commit a crime, and having unauthorized computer access. The software, which was called eBlaster, and which is now discontinued, its parent company having been sold off after dozens of such cases, 
with similar circumstances and outcomes, went through the court system. At the time, they advertised their product with this tagline, quote, Are you concerned about what your spouse, employees, or children do on the internet while you are away? You can't always be around to watch over their shoulders, so hire a second pair of eyes with eBlaster, end quote. eBlaster, as I mentioned, was sold to another company, one that is a little bit more careful with their branding, focusing entirely on the potential office use cases for the software, giving zero marketing attention to anything interpersonal, at least in their public-facing sales copy. Not all companies are so careful, though. Even those that have themselves been at the center of legal scandals of this kind in the past. A software-as-a-service company called MSpy makes software for all major operating systems, computer-based and smartphone-based, and it is aimed fairly squarely most of the time at the kid-tracking market, at parents who want to keep tabs on their children through their phones and computers. As recently as July of 2019, though, MSpy was running ads on Twitter that were decidedly different in tone. In one such ad, there's a stock photo of a man lying in a bed, looking at his phone, with little pop-up messages overlaying the image meant to look like they are from the M-Spy app. These messages say, Helen left the office, and Helen entered the nightclub. The Twitter advertising message itself says, quote, What is she hiding from you? Find out with M-Spy! This would seem to be one of those moments where someone in marketing decided to see if they could get away with saying the quiet part loud, seeing what kind of reception they could get from being more overt about how this app is often used, rather than downplaying it, for primarily legal but also reputational reasons. The ad, though, was noticed by a lot of people who screenshot and publicized it widely, criticizing MSpy itself for being a horrible, stalking-enabling company, but also Twitter for running an ad for stalkerware, and within relatively short order, the ad was pulled, though there didn't seem to be any further consequences for MSpy, since creating a creepy ad is not itself illegal. MSpy is notable in this space for another reason beyond simply being a little too honest about their customer base, though. In May of 2015, and then again in September of 2018, MSpy was hacked, reportedly because their security infrastructure was not up to snuff, and millions of accounts had their login information, but also the details and media collected by the app, stolen by hackers. Some of this information was then made public, some was hoarded by hackers, and some later ended up in data dumps. That means all that key logging info, the passwords, the private messages, the emails, the still images and videos, the audio recordings, the location information from GPS, the screen grabs, all of it, not just seen by a parent or employer or jealous ex or stalker even, but also potentially the entire internet or a hacker who may buy, sell, and otherwise abuse such information. In some cases, users of apps like MSpy have been fined substantial amounts of money for using them in illegal ways. In one case, a man installed MSpy on his ex-wife's phone and ended up paying nearly half a million dollars after his crime was revealed in court. But remarkably, MSpy and many other companies like it still exist and operate and peddle their wares freely, even those that have left their stolen goods relatively unguarded and which later get hacked as a result, like MSpy, and like another similar service called the Truth Spy. This despite the fact that other companies, 
like one called Stealth Genie, which had essentially the same product and business model, was taken down by U.S. regulators in 2014. Its owner arrested and charged with advertising and selling spyware technology, something that is ostensibly a criminal offense, but which is apparently not implemented equally across the industry. The trouble here goes beyond the uneven execution of existing laws on the books, though. Part of the issue is that stalkerware exists because there is a serious market for it. In some places around the world, that market is substantial and very open about what they're selling and how it's used. In Saudi Arabia, the Ministry of Interior for the country developed a smartphone app called AppSure, which allows Saudi Arabian citizens to do things like apply for jobs and permits, update their passport info, or report crimes. It also allows male users to track the women they are in charge of under the auspices of the country's male guardianship apparatus, a system that has changed a little bit over the past few years to allow women to access government services like education and healthcare, to drive, and to register for official documents without first needing to get permission from their male guardian, usually a male family member or a husband. But the overarching program is still in place, giving these men massive amounts of control over what the women, over whom they have legal guardianship, can do. So this app, among other things, can alert the male user when a woman, over whom he has guardianship, tries to use her passport. And he can even prevent her from traveling, if he so desires, using that same app. Some women who live within this system have said that the app has actually made their lives easier, as they can get guardian authorization, even when their guardian is located elsewhere. But critics maintain that it's simply a more user-friendly version of the same oppression, and that Google and Apple, both of which make the app available in their respective smartphone app stores, are complicit in that oppression by presenting it in this way, and thus validating it and making it more accessible than it would otherwise be. So knowing all of this, what might we do to defend ourselves from this type of software, whatever the source, and what does the future hold in terms of ameliorating the potentially massive downsides of it being available in the first place, or at the very least being available in a form that is so easy to access and abuse. One of the best places to start when it comes to upping your technology-related security game is the Electronic Freedom Foundation, and more specifically, the EFF's Surveillance Self-Defense page, which can be found at ssd.eff.org. This site provides free information about general things you can do to reinforce your security, what to do when specific concerns arise, and it gives links to security starter packs and collections of resources if you're concerned about things like crossing a border and having your devices snooped upon, or if you're going to a protest, or if you just want to learn how to use Tor or Signal. If you need something more hands-on, you can find resources, including human resources, who can help you out in nine different languages. English, Spanish, French, German, Portuguese, Russian, Tagalog, Arabic, and Italian at Access Now's Digital Security Helpline, which can be found at accessnow.org help. Very broadly, if you have an iPhone, you're a little bit safer than if you have an Android phone, but both operating systems are improving fairly rapidly in this regard, 
I think both companies can see the writing on the wall and have been working on new tools to let us know what is going on in the background of our devices. And part of that effort is found in Android Q and iOS 13, the newest versions of both operating systems, as of the day I'm recording this in late October 2019, and both of which now prompt users periodically to give permission for apps, to use your photos, to access your location, and other things of that nature. Now, this new periodic pop-up may at first seem a little bit irritating, but it's actually kind of wonderful as it means that it is unlikely that a piece of stalkerware would be able to track you for very long without you being made aware that it's there, creeping on your whereabouts. It will periodically have to ask for your permission to continue doing that, giving you an opportunity to realize what's going on. The big caveat here is that these updates are very recent, and only the newest phones, at this point at least, are likely to have this feature for certain. And it'll likely be a little while before most iPhones have the newest operating system installed, and probably even longer for Android phones, which are a lot more fractured, typically, in terms of which version of the operating system each device allows you to use have similar features. It does seem that some of these stalkerware apps are being pulled from app stores as well iOS has a lot fewer issues of this kind in general because of its more highly regulated walled garden nature. But Google recently removed seven apps because of their potential to be abused in this way. And it seems likely, if security bloggers and such continue writing about them and calling attention to them, that the Android folks will continue to relatively proactively do so in the future. Proactive compared to how they've been in prior years at least, before user focus and anti-invasiveness became such a selling point on the smartphone market. That said, if you have a suspicion that something like this might be on your device, sometimes the best option is just to factory reset the phone, which will almost always wipe out this software alongside everything else. If you back up all your photos and contacts and such, you should be able to just re-download all the apps that you want to be on your device, and the one that was placed there by someone else will be gone. It's also generally good practice to periodically go through your phone and delete all the apps that you're not using, in part for peace of mind and in part because that could filter out misbehaving apps that you don't recognize, but that you also don't feel like you have a pressing reason to delete at the moment and therefore overlook. Of course, if the person who potentially put it there, either by sending you a file via text message or email that you opened, or by convincing you to click on a link that then auto-downloaded that app onto your device, or if they're able to get their hands on your phone physically and unlock it and download something there without you realizing it, no amount of resetting it will keep them from tracking you. They'll just keep on re-uploading that software over and over and over again. At which point, it's probably a good idea to step back and consider the situation more generally, since there's no wall high enough to keep out an antagonist that's already inside your home. And if there's already abuse of some kind taking place, chances are fairly high that there is some technological component to that abuse, whether or not it's immediately evident. And that facet of this type of abuse is something that often falls under the category of coercive control, a type of abuse that is sometimes physically violent, but very often mostly coercive using other methods, like surveillance or implied blackmail or shaming or other types of intimidation. These apps are tools that make coercive control more potent and accessible for those who wish to use it against others, and thus the two are often connected. 
a recent bit of research conducted on domestic violence, culminating in a paper entitled The Abuse of Technology in Domestic Violence and Stalking, presents some illuminating statistics on this subject, including that 68% of women who are on the receiving end of a homicide attempt or who are actually killed by their partner report stalking of some kind within the 12 months leading up to that attempted or successful murder. And that stalking behavior, although performed by both men and women at times, statistically takes different shapes between the two, with 25% of female undergrads in one study self-reporting that they monitored their partner's behavior by checking their emails and or text messages without their partner's permission or knowledge, compared to 6% of undergrad men in that same study that self-reported the same. While, on the other hand, far more men used hidden cameras and GPS devices, 3% and 5% respectively, on their partners without their knowledge, compared to women, who come in at 0.4% and 1%. A lot of the data that we have available within this field of research is sketchy, because it's either self-reported on a topic that is likely to be quite private or embarrassing or even illegal, or it comes from police records which are often incomplete for a variety of reasons, especially when the target of such harassment and abuse might be too intimidated or afraid to make such a report. All of the data that is available, though, seems to indicate that variations on the surveillance theme are quite common, even amongst people who do not consider themselves to be crazy stalkers and who can easily justify away their behavior we're seeing a lot more of this. The technology available to the everyday person is enabling more of us to do things that we wouldn't want our partner or the target of our surveilling, be they our kid or employee, to know about than ever before. We can do such things more capably and casually because of these technologies and the powers they grant us. And these types of apps and other software are unlikely to go away anytime soon. In fact, they're likely to become increasingly powerful and more common rather than less so in the coming years. And while there's a chance the fundamental components of our devices may continue to lean toward protecting us rather than exposing us, it's a good idea overall to take some time to learn about and practice good technological hygiene and to implement basic security measures, just in case. No one should have to worry about being targeted by someone in this way, just as no one should have to worry about abuse of any kind. But the nature of the tech world at the moment is that if there is an audience for it, a product will continue to sell, even if it's only made available on the sketchiest parts of the internet. And as long as that's the case, the best most of us can do is attempt to harden our technological defenses and consider how we might change this dynamic, just like we might for surveillance as a whole, so we can benefit from the positive effects of these types of technologies while suffering from fewer, and ideally, maybe someday, none of the negative ones. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator by Timothy Weingard. I actually read this book while I was in Italy recently in a place called Ostia, just outside of Rome proper. And that was a fitting place to read this as I was being devoured by mosquitoes, but also a portion of this book takes place in Rome. This book is essentially a nonfiction historical walk through human history, demonstrating where and how mosquitoes and mosquito-borne diseases have played a role in different pivotal moments. 
And it turns out there are a lot of pivotal moments that have been pivoted based on mosquito-borne diseases like yellow fever and malaria and things of that nature. Everything from great Roman battles with legionnaires to more modern battles like the Revolutionary War, which was the war that eventually led to the United States becoming a country. So if you're curious to learn about mosquitoes and mosquito-borne diseases in general, but also where those insects and their diseases intersect with human history and how things may have changed based on their existence and presence in these different locations at different momentous times, consider picking up a copy of The Mosquito by Timothy Weingard. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of this podcast at letsknowthings.com. I've got some new publications that I've just started to publish this week. You can find them at askcolin.com, brainlenses.com, and understandery.com. That last one in particular being a news analysis email that I'm going to be publishing each week. So if you're enjoying this show, you might also enjoy that particular publication, understandery.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on social media. I am at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and just Colin Wright on Facebook. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.